working out this proposal for this book, you know, the, one of the things they want to know is what do you hope to achieve? And, you know, the, what I just said is like modeling what a normal sane gun owner looks like, does, you know, what types of guns do we own? Why, you know, what kind of training do we take? All of those things. And, you know, for that to be the lesson, not to say, do this, don't do that, right? We have enough people who are saying that on both sides. Do this, don't do that. I just want to model it. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, as always, you know, it's a, it's a free podcast. You get what you pay for. We're laughing. You, you can hear laughter in my voice. It's because we're having technical issues that the listening audience doesn't even know about. And I probably shouldn't even bring you into it because you don't know any different. Uh, but it's an adventure this morning for us. Hello, Michael. Hey, Jake. How's it going? You know how it's going. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> for the listening audience, it's, it's, go, it's going great, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and I hope I didn't just short myself out by hitting my own microphone there. Uh, <laughs> David, 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 welcome. <laughs> David Umani is here all the way from North Carolina. Hello, David. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, thanks for being patient and gracious. Uh, you understand technological difficulties, I guess. Um, Professor David Umani from Wake Forest University in North Carolina. So, um, hi, welcome to the show. And... Thanks for carving out the time. Uh, give you a little opportunity to introduce yourself. I just gave your uh, title and location, but uh, maybe you should uh, tell everybody why you're here and what brings you to our neck of the broadcast. Yeah, well, I am uh, a I am a sociology professor, but uh, I also am a gun owner, and you know those two things have sort of dovetailed over the past decade or so as I've been both participating in gun culture and also analyzing gun culture as a, as a sociologist, uh, particularly what I call having stolen the idea from Michael Bain, gun culture 2.0. So the re- most recent evolution of gun culture toward uh, a self-defense orientation away from some of the historic uh, gun culture 1.0 pursuits of hunting and recreational shooting. So, you know, that's, uh, that's the brief of my background. Uh, it's uh, the unique approach I think I have to understanding gun culture, both as a participant and an observer. Uh, would you, so you call yourself a sociologist, um, but you, you, you delve somewhat, and I, I don't know how the fields overlap necessarily. I work in the counseling field that's sort of psychologically oriented. We deal with some sociological concepts, but what's the Venn diagram of like psychology and sociology, would you say? Yeah, well, I think, you know, psychology largely uh, addresses issues that are happening kind of within the person, you know, having to do, you know, their their psychological makeup, their character, uh, in- increasingly aspects of their uh, brain, cognitive science, uh, 
sociology tends to look at what happens between people, you know, all the way from pairs of people up to groups, organizations, institutions, and global processes. Uh, and there is an overlap uh, called social psychology, which uh, is actually a kind of contested area because psychologists do social psychology in a particular way and sociologists do social psychology in a particular way. Some of that is academic politics. Uh, but, you know, I think really the, you know, for me being a sociologist means to, to study what people kind of do with, to, and around other people with guns. Yeah. Tell your story. Cause it's a, it's a pretty interesting one. Insofar as I understand it, you weren't always a gun owner and this is sort of a recent dish development last 10 or 12 years, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I grew up in the blue bubble of San Francisco Bay area and, uh, you know, never saw touched or fired a gun my whole childhood and you know, going into sociology, uh, you know, which is a liberal discipline within academia, which itself is liberal, uh, and so that, you know, blue bubble that, you know, uh, kind of encapsulated me from guns and gun culture just followed me, you know, to college at Berkeley and to graduate school in Wisconsin. And, you know, through my first job at, at the University of Notre Dame, you know, even though places like Wisconsin, Indiana, even California, you know, they have gun cultures. But, you know, I just managed to, to stay insulated from that because of my own particular interests and you know, the types of people I hung around with. But then when I got to North Carolina, I started noticing, you know, guns around me more often, you know, that there were people that I played tennis with and IT folks and real estate agents, you know, who were gun owners. Uh, there were signs and billboards for gun stores and gun shows and concealed carry classes, uh, watched Top Shot on the History Channel. So, uh, you know, the, the reality of guns just came onto my radar in a way that it had never had in, you know, my earlier life. Uh, and that sort of sensitivity, when it got combined with a uh, very disturbing interaction I had in the parking lot of my apartment complex when I had my kids with me, you know, kind of made me start putting these, these pieces together and, uh, you know, thinking, well, if I actually needed to protect myself or my family, my kids, especially, what would I do? And I didn't really have a good answer. So, uh, you know, having been sensitized to the possibility of guns, you know, allowed me to go out to the range, just shoot with no intention of becoming a gun owner, but just trying to figure out, you know, how they worked and how dangerous they were. Uh, and then, you know, from there, um, just got deeper and deeper into, you know, a personal relationship with guns. And around the same time, you know, was start needed to start a new academic research project. And I thought, you know what, guns are this really interesting thing that I don't know anything about. So, you know, maybe I should make that my uh, sort of professional uh, 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 project at the same time I was developing this personal interest. So, And the university supported you in that, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, when I, I first wrote up the project I wanted to study it was going to be a very discreet look at why do people want to carry concealed weapons. Uh, you know, I could articulate reasons, good sort of sociological reasons to want to answer that question. Applied for a small research grant, uh, you know, $10,000 from the university and also got a, a semester's research leave to get the project up and running. 
Uh, and, you know, I use some of that, that uh, research money to, you know, buy DVDs and subscribe to magazines. I paid for my tuition to uh, Masada Ubes Mag 40 with that. I went to the Range Master Tactical Conference with that money. Uh, and so, you know, I, it was, you know, from my perspective, as long as you're answering legitimate academic questions in your research, you know, the university, at least my university is perfectly happy to support that work. Yeah. And that would be my next yeah. question. Sorry, Jake. Uh, so do you feel like that would have flown at Cal Berkeley? I mean, I think that it, it would be harder and, and, you know, truth be told, I, uh, started this project right as I was on the brink of being promoted to what we call full professor. So there are basically three ranks, you know, assistant professor, associate professor, where you ha typically have tenure. And so that's a, you know, a protection. And then when you're promoted to full professor, there's really no further promotions you can get beyond that. And so I had the benefit of being tenured and a full professor when I undertook this work. So you know, there was a sense in which I wasn't vulnerable in any way, you know, I could just do what I wanted to. So, you know, if I was, uh, you know, an up and coming scholar, you know, a junior untenured faculty member, I don't know that I would encourage that person to, to set about doing, you know, what I'm doing. Uh, and, you know, it is the case that the bulk of the people working in the field of gun studies focus it on the negative aspects of guns. Um, so, you know, I, I feel fortunate that my university supports me at the same time. I didn't, I don't need the kind of support that, that younger people who might be entering the field need. Yeah. I want to kind of get into that a little bit because I, I got three college degrees and because I like student loan debt, apparently. Um, so one of those is in higher ed administration. So I'm, I'm a little familiar with uh, the way academic circles run and the dynamics of university settings and so forth. And I've become aware in recent years to the politics of academics, which I, I understand there's politics everywhere, but it seems to be increasingly suppressive of certain types of content, shall we say. And, um, and I can't necessarily put a finger on all of it, but but there's definitely a flavor, right? And that that flavor, that that trend, seems to run antithetical to academic pursuit in its spirit, in its true like you know ethic and and mission and and vision. And I'm I'm trying to figure out it's two part question. One is why are academicians pushing? angles instead of being academically intellectually honest in pursuing all knowledge and the advancement thereof. And then the second part of that question is, what are some of those academic questions that you want answered and are seeking to have answered through this project? I know that's kind of loaded, so feel free to talk for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think that there is a case to be made that there um, is a strong uh, in certain fields, there's a strong kind of political interest in the type of work that's being done. Um, and I, but I think where some of the critique of higher education today uh, is flawed is that it kind of assumes this golden age in an earlier time when, you know, scholars just sat back in their office thinking pure, you know, free thoughts, you know, without concern for politics uh, but, you know, it's the case that, you know, the, the kinds of biases that people have when they pick their topics have been in higher education, you know, the whole time. 
uh, you know, anthropologists had extremely, you know, prejudicial views of people that they went out and studied in the developing world. Uh, And, um, you know, so racism exists, sexism existed previously. So, you know, some, to some extent, we see the pendulum swinging back with people saying, hey, you know, we need to correct for some of the massive oversights that have existed historically in the way people have done research. I think, and then on top of that, in the, you know, post-60s era, you know, that there are a lot of people who really do take a kind of political activist approach to their scholarship, right? They really, you know, feel like they're not just trying to understand the world, but also to change the world. Uh, In those tensions between people who are more neutral and scientific in their approach, you know, who are also biased, uh, and those who are more explicitly political is something that gets uh, fought out in a lot of different disciplines, including in sociology. And, you know, sometimes it appears that the political activist wings are winning all the time. Uh, but, you know, I think it, it there's more back and forth, I think, that goes on than than is oftentimes seen because you hear publicized in social media or in the regular media, the worst, you know, the most egregious cases. Um, so, you know, I would not you know, defend the contemporary university against claims of, of bias. It's a very liberal place, also has very activist elements. Um, but I would also say the university's never been a perfect place because it's composed of human beings. Sure. So, yeah, no, that, 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 that satisfies my curiosity. I think I wanted to at least, uh, shed a little light on it for listeners who may have been themselves biased or interjected by, uh, what you alluded to on social media or regular media about the, you know, the, the leftism or the wokeism or the suppression of free speech or free thought or that kind of thing. So that, that makes sense that people bring in their own biases and they have their own intents about why they're pursuing whatever they pursue. Just, just like you do. Um, we want to, you know, advance certain types of knowledge and we're going to be, we're going to have our proclivities. So that makes sense. So to the, uh, to the second point though, what are some of these questions that you wish to answer that you believe have not yet been answered or at least not yet been thoroughly examined. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that the, for me, the, and I came to this idea much you know, later in my studies, but you know, really from the time I entered the field thinking, you know, concealed carry of firearms is something that a lot of people do. A lot of people want to do. There's a whole legal system and industry uh, there to support that activity. So try, just trying to figure out, why does that make sense to the people who do it, which I think is a very, you know, natural sociological approach, uh, only to find in the scholarship, you know, everything prominent that was written about guns was about the criminology, the epidemiology, you know, all of the negative outcomes associated with it. And in connection with concealed carry, uh, you know, the same kinds of concerns, uh, you know, that people are being Uh, motivated by racism or toxic masculinity in wanting to carry guns or compensating for economic decline. You know, so some of the standard, uh, you know, sociological theoretical perspectives just get applied to this as well. And I feel like what what's missing is the normality of the activity, you know, that I, I come came to say guns are normal and normal people use guns to capture that huge reality out there that most social scientists and, and public health scholars, uh, criminologists and epidemiologists have ignored. And now, you know, that said, I'm, you know, this is the, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, thing, 
you know, on the other hand, you know, these fields exist not to study what's right with the world, but to study what's wrong with the world, right? So in sociology, we have social problems. We don't have social normality, you know, and, and there's abnormal psychology. I don't know. Do they teach normal psychology classes, right? Um, you know, so there's a natural uh, interest among uh, social scientists and and public policy and public health people to try and figure out what's wrong and how can we fix it. So, you know, I think some of it is just bias against guns, but some of it is just where people's interests naturally lie. That would be a fun conversation to have, actually, because I was thinking of this book that I got in um, counseling school called Normal Family Processes. And, uh, and the first thing I thought was like, what is normal? How do we even define normal? But it's, it's a great, it's a great thought experiment or exercise to think, you know, like, you know, somebody walks into the counseling office, for example, and the first thing we want to know is what, what's your problem? What, what brings you in today? But then in so doing, when we, when we work through the, the treatment plan and we start healing people, um, we want to know what's right and what's working and why so that we can sustain it. So I think that'd be fun to, it'd be a fun conversation to have another time about, you know, why don't we explore what is working and redouble our efforts to say fund those types of activities? And, uh, you know, I'm sure that goes on in certain circles, but you're right. It's uh, it does seem overwhelmingly negative when you, when you think about it. And that's true. Uh, it's Mike, funny. I, you know, I follow sociology, Twitter, you know, as much as I can and every, you know, periodically someone will post something that basically says, Hey, my students are kind of bummed out. Can someone recommend a book written by a sociologist that has a happy ending? And um, <laughs> you know, so I think there's some recognition, in, you know, in the field that that there is an emphasis on social problems, what's wrong with the world, what needs to be done, you know, to make it right. And uh, and oftentimes sociology is not the most practical discipline for that because we are often kind of pushing to these this root cause analysis right where you get to the really deep deep causes of gun violence and then at that point you're like yeah we can reduce gun violence if we just fundamentally change society so it's like how many sociologists does it take to you know how many sociologists does it take to change a light bulb like five one to change the bulb and four to explain the root causes of darkness um, you know, it's so, uh, you know, I think that there are some natural challenges, uh, there. Yeah, for sure. Um, Mike, you, uh, you, you recently, well, I don't know, it was about a year or so ago, more than that, maybe now you and, uh, Rob Pincus, who's another one of our board members, you worked with David and given a presentation to his students. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, that was just an awesome experience and I, and I really appreciate you having me, uh, or having us as Walk Talk America come on there. Um, hopefully one day I'll be able to do it in person. Now it'll be in North Carolina more often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of want to dive into that class, that course, because it's that's the first time I'd ever heard of anything like that. You know, um, Jake and I have, have, you know, obviously gone to universities and, you know, gave speeches and things like that. But we know, you know, there was never a time when it was just for a specific course in firearms. And I, I think it's just fascinating. And I'm surprised you don't get... Um, well, maybe you do, so I apologize, but more <laughs> national attention that that exists, but maybe it's because it's a positive story, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, the course I do think is unique. You know, there's a couple of other people out there who are teaching courses on the sociology of, of firearms that take a, 
what I think of as an encompassing approach. But most courses that involve firearms are taught in criminology departments, again, or in public health, uh, some you know forms of uh, basically deviance and, and uh, death. Uh, and in, actually, when I first started studying guns, I would typically attend the American Sociological Association meetings, which is my main professional association. But there was so little research being done on guns that I actually had to, to end up going to the American Society of Criminology meetings just to find, you know, where are the people studying guns? Uh, so that was kind of indicative of the typical approach, you know, when guns are covered you know, again, always covered in the negative aspects. And I, you know, I want to deal with issues of suicide, homicide, accidental death and injury, intimate partner violence. You know, I think those are, you know, relevant issues to cover in a sociology of guns class, you know, but I also want to cover the history of firearms ownership, the legal frameworks, you know, the the normal things people do with guns, the shift to gun culture 2.0 and how people do new things with guns. Uh, and also, you know, having you and, you know, Rob in class was important to me so that students could see, um, you know, that, that the people in the gun community don't turn a blind eye to the issue of suicide. Right. And, you know, maybe, you know, I think a good argument could be made that we don't pay sufficient attention to that, or we haven't done it in a very good way previously. Um, but I think the, the concern, has long been there and now it's getting some uh, clear organizational expression uh, like with walk to talk America, hold my guns and other uh, groups that are you know, trying to make a positive impact on something that people within the gun community know is a problem. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, you have, how many students have come through total since you've started? Uh, I'd say about, uh, so I'm teaching it for the eighth time. So I've taught it, I teach it once a semester, Wake Forest, a pretty small university. So, uh, you know, I teach one, that course once a semester to about 16 students on average. So whatever seven times 16 is, Jake, you're the scientist among us. No, um, all, my de- all my degrees <laughs> are in the arts. I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. um, so this, in this fall, I have another 16. So, you know, uh, eight to 128 something like that. Uh, so, you know, not a, not a huge number of students any given semester, but the nice thing about teaching that, that small, uh, a size class is we, you know, have our pretty intimate group. Uh, we, you know, can get to know each other. Uh, people feel safe to share differing views. Uh, uh, you know, the class, one of the unique aspects of the class is that the first thing we do before we even meet as a class is we go to the gun range Uh, You know, I give some information about, you know, different types of guns, purchasing of guns, safe handling of guns, and then give the students an opportunity to actually shoot a 22 pistol, nine millimeter pistol and an AR. Uh, And in recent years, almost all the students, all the students in the last couple of years have taken the opportunity to do that. Obviously, I can't require students to shoot a gun, Uh, but that provides a real experiential basis on which students, regardless of their attitudes toward guns, you know, can understand, okay, this is what a gun feels like. This is what it's like to shoot the gun. This is why people might enjoy this activity. Uh, And, you know, so I think, I think that's a real uh, touchstone of the course. And, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to know, Michael, from you, you know, if you, if you felt uh, some level of understanding or empathy or sincerity from the students, you know, 
based on the way I tried to kind of prep them going into that conversation. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the feedback from the students was amazing. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Um, I can handle any negative criticism. And I do understand why people hate firearms, right? Like, I do. Most most people just don't want people to die. So, like, you know, I understand that. Um, but the feedback was really, really positive. And I remember talking with Rob after it was all said and done. We kind of got some of that feedback. And I was just like, I can't, I can't believe it's all super positive and people are seeing it. And it's just exactly what I wanted Walk to Talk America to be. So it was a really good, like, once again, it was a really good experience. Um, I guess my question is, so, you know, Jake and I do the, uh, the cultural competence course with Rob and we get about, you know, we, we basically try to get people out of their comfort zone, which I think you're doing in some, you know, in a way as well with college students, right? Now, you you know, you're in the South, you know, I get a bunch of college students are like, oh, cool, this is a gun course, right? Like, but you're still going to have people that come in and maybe they're breaking out of their comfort zone saying, I'm going to take this course. Um, what is the percentage of the breakdown, would you say, is people that are like super like, this is awesome. And then others are like, look, I'm going to do this because I want to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, one of the interesting things is that, you know, sociology is a heavily female discipline. So, you know, a huge percentage of our majors are, are women and that gets reflected in my classes. So, you know, the, out of those 16 to 18 students, the most men I've ever had in a single class is about five. Hmm. Uh, And so, you know, it is a Southern university, but it's also a national university. So I get students from, you know, coast to coast, a lot of students from the Northeast. So you can imagine if I have a lot of female students from the Northeast, you know, these are students who don't come from, you know, gun owning backgrounds. Uh, And so I think that's the the most typical student. Uh, This fall, I have 15 women and one man in the class. Um, you know, every now and then I'll get, you know, some people who are really super into guns and they want to take the course for that reason. Uh, but you know, the general student who takes the course is a social major or minor, you know, who comes from a non gun owning background, who has the exact concern that you express, which is like people die at the hands of guns and that's a problem. Uh, and so, uh, but the nice thing is they do also come into it open-minded, right? I prep them ahead of time. They actually have to get a permission from me to take the course so that I let them know you have to go to the gun range. You don't have to shoot. You know, this is not a course just about gun violence and gun control. Uh, and then a kind of general trigger warning. Like if you have traumatized experiences, you know, you need to be aware that that could get triggered in the course. So I think, you know, the students who go through the process of getting that instructor permission maybe have a little bit different mindset than the average student. Uh, but I, I've always appreciated their ability to bracket whatever their personal views are of guns uh, to engage the material uh, from an academic perspective. Uh, and that that includes, you know, the people who are kind of against guns and also the the super pro-gun students you know they have to bracket their pro-gunness to understand you know why is it that not everybody thinks like them yeah that's just awesome to hear i uh, i feel like like this course needs to be everywhere but you know uh i'm not i can't make that call but it's just really cool to hear that they're they're i i would have guessed it was the opposite so what you just told me was really fascinating to me that is you know largely female and people that are, are kind of like how I grew up. You know, I grew up in the uh, Jersey and the Bay area, 
right? I grew up in San Francisco, the Mission District. You know, the people didn't own guns, so I, I feel exactly what you're saying. And if they did, they were our neighborhood pharmacists or a gangster, right? Like uh, that that was the culture that, in at least where I was in San Francisco, the people that had a gun were out there in the streets, right? Um, so it's 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 fascinating to me, but that's really cool to hear. I mean, I love for to you know to try to make the the course scalable, um, and I do make all of a lot of the material available on my blog. I post student essays, and my my syllabus is always out there. But most faculty teach what they know, and if since most faculty only know that negative side of guns it's not easy for them to, you know, just take my syllabus, for example, and just start teaching it. You know, they would feel like they were, they were out of their depth and probably out of their area of interest. So, um, you know, I think one of the reasons it's not just kind of replicated from place to place is, is because of the way faculty come to teach their courses and, and the connection to what they know and what they do. Your, uh, your your blog is called Gun Curious, and it's I think it's WordPress, right? Guncurious.wordpress.com. Right? Yeah, or just Guncurious.com will take you there. Guncurious. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is your your story is sort of uh, dovetailing or, or paralleling uh, Johnny Pirelli's, who, and I've got his book here in front of me next to yours, um, The Behavioral Science of Firearms. And Pirelli is a psychologist from New Jersey who's start. He was on our podcast. If anybody's listening, hasn't heard it. You should, definitely listen to his story. Um, he was approached by people seeking gun evals because New Jersey requires an evaluation to get a gun license and so on and so forth. And he was like, I have no idea what this is. Um, also not a gun owner, but found himself needing to acquire some competence in order to uh, conduct these evaluations. And he starts looking for literature, can't find any, goes to his uh, mentors and colleagues, can't, they, they're unaware and he basically was like, well, I guess I got to write it. So he pulled together a bunch of stuff, created this basically what's a 600 page lit review on um, on firearms and how they interplay with the the individual psychology of a, of a person. And yours is really very much the same. It's like you kind of stumbled into it compelled by, um, you know, environment and it would be really cool if we had a symposium, I think, maybe not, maybe we end up with a podcast at the end of it, but I love to get people together like you and Johnny and Emmy Betts, who's a psychiatrist from Colorado. We still need to get her on the show. Um, me, Mike, Rob, you know, it's like, and then you got a joke. It's like a psychiatrist, a sociologist, a psychologist, <laughs> a counselor, and a gun industry walk into the bar. And it's, um, and, and it really figure out how we're continuing to, to basically do the same work. In, in our own specialized realms so that we can bring good information and and re- remove some of the the preconceived notions about what it means to everybody's various fields and how we can bring help to people so that they don't have to live in the shadows anymore. I think that'd be really cool. So maybe that's something we put on the, on the agenda for, you know, down the road, but uh, you've got, you've also got a YouTube channel or a couple of them, maybe you got, you got, one that's light over heat, which I really, really like. I like your videos are great because they're so casual and um, I don't know if innocence the right word, but it's, it's very, it's very honest, right? It's very authentic. And, and you just, uh, they're, they're short little clips uh, for people who are curious, uh, you know, definitely check out David's uh, light over heat, but talk a little bit about the, the, the evolution of your work broadly not just in the academic sphere but in the popular sphere too you're you know connected over social media on twitter and um you're continuing to push this information out how has that 
worked for you? How did you like acquire a taste for it or even a desire to continue moving that direction as opposed to the staying in your traditional box, so to speak? Yeah. Well, so going back to the start, when I, when I pivoted from my historic uh, expertise in the sociology of religion to the sociology of guns, I basically gave up everything I had invested in my academic career. I had, you know, I had no colleagues, I had no standing in my field. Uh, so I was really starting, you know, from scratch, which was kind of one of the exciting parts about it, it was like going back and being a graduate student again. Uh, and so I started writing this gun culture 2.0 blog, which was my initial blog, just because I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anything to write for. I, you know, I didn't know enough to write anything. So I just started, you know, little by little, just writing a blog, almost like just for myself. And then over time, I was like, oh, wow, people are starting to read this thing. Right. And so that I said, oh, there's an audience out there for what I'm, what my ideas are. And so, you know, the blog, uh, the gun culture 2.0 blog grew uh, pretty well. And at some point I said, I'm really now sort of talking to insiders, right? The real audience for that work, even though it wasn't my attention was people who are really inside the gun culture. But I said, you know, we need to speak outside the gun culture as well. Uh, you know, America is really divided into thirds. You know, you got a third gun owners, you have a third of people who are like, no, hell no, I'll never own a gun. And then you have a third of the population who are what I call the gun curious, who don't currently own guns, but don't rule out owning guns in the future. Right? So I think, you know, that's two thirds of the population who are in certain some ways sympathetic to guns. And I said, how do I reach that? Those people like the gun curious people, people who were like me 10 years ago. Uh, and so I said, I'll just start a new blog and, you know, do what I think is kind of less insider kind of talk about. I went to this gun training class and you, those, you know, what's the best way to carry a gun and those things. Um, so putting out real basic information, who owns how many guns, why you know, I post stuff from my class there. Uh, if I read some research, I think is interesting. I'll post it there. And, and I felt good about that. I don't know that I ever reached that gun curious audience how I wanted to. And then blog readership seemed to peak at some point in the last couple of years. And, you know, I talked to other bloggers, Greg Elifritz talks about the same thing that, you know, the, the, the air of the blog may be, you know, on its downside. Uh, so I thought, how can I, again, continue to try to reach people with this perspective that, you know, isn't guns are terrible or Molan Labe, you know, that middle ground light over heat. And so, uh, you know, I said, well, let me just try to make short videos, one video a week, addressing a lot of the same issues that I address in Gun Curious uh, with hopefully the same intended audience, um, but in a different kind of format that, that people seem to be attracted to. And, you know, making, making inroads, it's not easy even to put out a five minute video every week. You know, we are talking about technical issues. Uh, you know, sometimes the ideas flow more easily than others. I've been working on, you know, getting better audio for the whole time, you know, and then the video goes to crap when I get the audio good and, um, but, you know, hopefully it, it's worthwhile. And over time, you know, I think the, the way you two algorithms work, you know, is that you have to have a lot of videos out on a regular basis before it even feeds into the algorithm and kind of can get you a broader audience. So right now I'm, you know, gain, gaining most of my audience through my, my current connections. 
but it's been a fun experiment and, you know, again, hopefully continues to reinforce that brand, so to speak of, of, you know, I want to speak uh, about guns and gun culture, the normality of it uh, in a way that is, you know, attractive to people as opposed to, you know, kind of turning people off, which, you know, a lot of the, the social media based gun discourse is, is a pretty big turnoff to people who aren't already bought into that. Yeah. I want to be more like that, you know, middle ground, um, you know, saying things that, that triggers, a an interest, um, you know, keep going back to curiosity. That's, that's one of the 10 core emotions is interest. It's what keeps us awake, uh, you know, and paying attention to things. And, and I do think there's a hunger out there. I let, you know, I don't do maths, but, uh, I do do the maths of two thirds. And if you ever have a two thirds of an audience that, you know, falls into some category, probably pay attention to it. So that good on you for doing that. Do you enjoy doing this, the, the videos and stuff? It's not very natural for me, uh, which is odd because I've been teaching for 25 years. Um, but there's something different about standing in front of a class, you know, and, and talking about things I know than, uh, you know, I feel like the, the videos, because they're so short, and because I feel like even asking for five minutes of someone's time is a big ask in this day and age, that I want them to be fairly composed and high value. You know, I don't want to just put out five minutes of me rambling. So, you know, it does take, you know, time to think about, you know, what am I going to do? And then, of course, I'm not a skilled video editor. So, you know, it takes me time to edit them together and get the audio right. So, um I wouldn't say I enjoy doing it, but it is something that I think is important to do. And so I, I enjoy seeing the fruits of the work, I guess. Do you have, do you have any desire to go back to the religion stuff? Cause I think there's probably some pretty significant overlap there. If I were to hazard a guess. Yeah. You know, the first thing I ever published academically about guns was about religion and gun ownership. Uh, so, you know, I, there are some some pretty strong connections there. Uh, I also, um, you know, I, I follow the publishing industry. And so, you know, every week they put out a thing that shows who's signed uh, contracts to have their books published. And I saw that um, John Lovell from the Warrior Poet Society just signed a contract to have a book published about uh, biblically inspired uh, masculine virtues. Uh, and so why am I talking about that? I don't even know why, how I got onto that topic. <laughs> oh, going back to religion. Uh, so that, yeah, there are, there are some very strong overlaps between religion and guns in America. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't know that I ever go back kind of fully into the study of religion. Uh, but, you know, I do try to, to, understand how religion factors into other areas of social life. Uh, and then there may be some, you know, kind of quasi religious elements, uh, you know, the way you, you hear people talk about hunting, uh, the way you hear people talk about uh, precision shooting, you know, there, there's some kind of spiritual elements to that, I think. Yeah. I, I asked because um, there's a couple of pretty prominent um, figures in the firearms community I've um, had the privilege of meeting over the last couple of years. Uh, one is Yehuda Reimer, who's a organized, uh, organized <laughs> Orthodox Jew who goes by the Pew Pew Jew. And he speaks a lot to uh, 
Jewish faith and firearms ownership, which is not popular among the Jewish community for reasons that he gets into on our interview. And then uh, Lloyd Bailey, who runs the Armed Lutheran podcast or Armed Lutheran radio, um, talking about the, the Christian aspect of it. And I think I think that could be a really fruitful conversation among the three of you guys, you with your historical background, spanning what I'm guessing is comparative religion, and those two guys with their insights and dissections of the the intersection there. I think that'd be really, really cool that I, I would listen. So you'd have one audience member at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, you know, I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, people who are, who come to everything in the world from a, a religious or a spiritual perspective. So it's not surprising that people would also, you know, think about this in, in terms of, of religious perspectives and, uh, the nice thing about religion is that there's no single correct way. So, you know, you have Jews who are like Yehuda, who are strongly pro-gun, and you have others who are equally anti-gun. And you know, you know, just pick pick your religious tradition, and you'll find the same. To you know, include you know things that we think of as very pacifist, like Buddhist, you know, Buddhism. Uh, you know, you have people who are are Buddhists and also gun owners for defensive purposes. So. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, that's a good point about the, the Buddhist uh, philosophy, too, because it, there's threads of that in what I've learned uh, in libertarianism, uh, capital L, little L, doesn't really matter, but um, there's this principle of non-aggression in political libertarianism, but yet most libertarians own guns, you know, for defense purposes, it's almost just, it sounds a little bit like NATO, it's like, we're not going to attack, but we'll defend. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, it's a it's a curious conversation to have. And I'd, I'd be interested in learning more just because I've, I haven't really explored it fully. Yeah, well, I couldn't teach you that's not my expertise is not in, in Buddhism, but I do can make the general observation of the, uh, you know, that every religious tradition is has got different uh, expressions. And, you know, that that the same things map on, you know, people's social views, people's political views, people's views of guns, you know, those those get uh, shaped by people's religious views. Yeah, David, I have a question. When you when you first got into kind of the two a culture, we talk about some of the eye rolling that we get from some of the people that are just like the super, you know, (laughs) probably from the cold dead hands guys. Um how did you, how, how were you able to kind of, cause I would say that, you know, you were a minority in there, right? Like, um, you know, I know how I was able to do it because like I, through nepotism, getting my job in the industry, I was able to just kind of sit back and listen and try to really understand where some of these people were coming from. Cause you know, when I first got in, I didn't understand certain things. Cause I was like, I wonder why we have this like huge, strong stance on this. Right. Um, and it just wasn't really articulated, uh, in a way that I felt had like compassion or understanding, you know, it was always kind of like this, like throw the gauntlet down and, you know, end of discussion. Right. So how did you kind of go into this and go, okay, I could stay in the pocket here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think uh, I'm, you know, a genuinely curious and open-minded person. And so when I, like I said, the, the, the academic question I was trying to answer was, why does this activity make sense to the people who do it? And so any kind of situation I go into, even if it's someone who I might disagree with socially, disagree with politically, you know, just have different, different orientations to the world. You know, my, my interest is in why is what you're doing 
making sense to you. And I think people appreciate that. You know, people, you know, if they're going to allow you to come in and observe what they're doing, they want to feel some level of trust that you're going to accurately represent what they're actually doing. And I think that's something that I've, I've strived for. Uh, and, and I do just because that's what I want to do. You know, I don't have a particular angle, you know, I'm not promoting uh, any uh, particular way of uh, you should carry, you shouldn't carry, you should do this training, you shouldn't, you should own a rifle, nine millimeter, 45, right? All the things that tear the gun community apart. I have no, you know, dog in those fights. Um, when I was at Gunsight, um, one of the, you know, the I had to ask to attend. This was pretty early in my observation. I had a letter of introduction from Masada Yub that basically said, you know, this guy's pretty serious. He took my class, you know, give him some consideration. I asked to come observe the Gunsight 250 course. Uh, I know they did some kind of background checks, you know, on me to see whether, you know, I was who I said I was. Um, and, you know, but then when I showed up there, I observed what people were doing. I talked to people, you know, tried to find out what, what, why they were there, what they were learning and why. Uh, and then at the end, you know, one of the students said, it's really great to have a pro gun professor here watching us. And I said, well, you know, I, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you having me here, but I don't think of myself as a pro gun professor. I said, I'm a pro truth professor. And I want to understand the truth of what happened over these last five days. Uh, and I, you know, I still maintain that, like, I guess, you know, implicitly, you know, the fact that I'm a gun owner, uh, you know, makes me, you know, pro gun in a sense, but I don't see my work as being a work of advocacy, right? My work is a work of trying to tell a truth about the world. And that was true, you know, back when I studied, uh, you know, uh, higher education curriculum, religion, guns, to me, that's all the same. You've got a new project you're working on. You're, you want to get this uh, story published. And, um, but I want to first talk about Concealed Carrier Revolution, which is the other book that I'm holding here. Um, what prompted you to write this one, which is really kind of a history of uh, carrying weapons, but also carrying concealed weapons. Uh, which is very, very good. It's a short read. It's, it's easy read and it's uh, full of cool stuff that I never knew of before. Uh, and then how did that evolve into what you're doing now and what you hope to, to accomplish with this new project that you're working on? Yeah. Well, if I can keep the train of my thought this time, they are related. So, you know, when I first started doing this project, it was very kind of narrowly academic and sociological. And so, you know, what I thought, if I'm going to talk about concealed carry or defensive gun culture, I need to understand the history of concealed carry, especially the laws governing concealed carry. So I spent a lot of time working on that. I had a whole, you know, 20,000 word book chapter that was going to just deal with the changing laws. But then, you know, over time, I realized that, you know, maybe I had a broader story to tell, not just to my, you know, 400 closest colleagues in the sociology world. But, you know, maybe the story of my entry into gun culture could be of broader interest. So, you know, I thought, well, forget the idea of writing another academic book that's going to have 600 to 1,000 copies sold. 
uh, I'm going to try to write a, a trade book that could sell 50,000 copies, uh, which is a totally different ball game. Uh, but I did have all of this work that I had done that I thought nobody else has written a kind of short, comprehensive history of carry laws in the United States and talked about some of the issues you know, pertaining to carry in the contemporary setting. So I thought, well, let me pull all that work I did for the academic book write it up into something that would be interesting and digestible. And that became the Concealed Carry Revolution book, uh, which, you know, I think uh, does fill that gap in, you know, if someone says, hey, I, I have an hour, I want to know the history of concealed carry in the United States. I think I could legitimately say, if you read this book, you will have an accurate understanding of that history. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a relic from my earlier days, but, uh, you know, is related to what I'm doing now in the sense that I'm trying to tell some of that same contemporary history of gun culture, but in a way that puts myself much more at the center of the story, uh, in a, in a way that hopefully will be attractive to people who are in gun culture. You know, if you're in gun culture, I hope you, you know, you see yourself in the story. Uh, if you're gun curious, you know, it's a kind of book that will, uh, you know, help you understand why guns make sense to people who own them. And then if you're a critic of gun culture, you know, you want to understand why does this uh, practice make sense to people who do it, even if you don't understand or disagree with it, you know, hopefully some of those folks will, will benefit from looking at the, the broader book, you know, the gun curious book, as I call it now. Presuming that you get your pitch uh, sold, um, what what type of time frame are we talking about here? I've never published anything. I have no idea. Or is it a year or two years? Or I don't I have no idea. Yeah. Well, my my sense is that the the commercial market works faster than the academic market. Uh, you know, I I had a book that I started in the year two thousand two. Uh, that was published in 2014. So that's like my academic <laughs> timeline. Uh, but you know, the, the agent that I'm talking to right now said, if I can get him a proposal that is saleable, that he wants to try and sell it this summer. And I think it, you know, it would be possible and for me desirable if it could be out in the summer of 2023. Um, you know, I, I have, of 10 chapters proposed. I have about six of them completely drafted out. And if, uh, you know, I get a publishing agreement done, I'll be very highly motivated to get the other four written. Um, but, you know, again, that I think there's some uncertainty there just in terms of how long it will take to sell, you know, what the, what the substantive editor thinks of the approach that I'm taking. Uh, but, you know, I know that, that, Oftentimes in the commercial market, a book could be sold in April and published in November. So hopefully, you know, this is, this is what I tell myself to keep my getting up in the morning and sitting down at the computer is that the end is near. <laughs> what other classes do you teach? I don't want to, I don't want to make you into this, like, you know, one dimensional person here. Well, I, I used to, I, I used to teach the sociology of religion class. I actually um, am co-author of the best-selling sociology of religion textbook in, in the field. Uh, but as I've shifted over to, you know, studying guns, I've continued to update that textbook, but I've really taught only 
the guns course. And then outside of that, I teach a lot of our introduction to sociology course, which you know, I absolutely love because most you know, students don't take sociology willingly. You know, it's a requirement for you know, one of the things you can take for a graduation requirement. Uh, but that makes them great students because they kind of come in begrudgingly. And if you do any kind of decent job teaching sociology, they come away from it feeling amazing. Some of them convert to sociology, uh, but some of them just, you know, become the person that like I meet now who's driving my Uber, who said, oh, I took sociology in college. It sucked. Or <laughs> I took sociology in college. It was great. So I think like that's my target audience. I'm like the person who 20 years later is going to remember they took social and either they loved it or hated it. And I want them to love it. So that's, I teach a lot of introduction to sociology. This is all uh, undergrad work. Yeah. Or do you teach, yeah. You, do, no. do you teach any grad work? No, Wake Forest doesn't, doesn't have any uh, graduate programs in most of the uh, college. So it's one of the things I, I like, actually, you know, if you get into the business of training graduate students, uh, it's a kind of different ball game. You have to be concerned about, you know, making sure that they're positioned right in the field and that they're employable at the end. They're also probably going into a job market, you know, that uh, they're not enough academic jobs for the number of PhDs who are created every year. So you have to, you know, figure what, what non-academic work can you do? So I, when I left Notre Dame, I kind of left all that graduate stuff behind. I love my graduate students there, but I don't, mistraining graduate students. Uh, mm. And yeah, I think Michael, you know, can attest that the, the undergraduates at Wake are, are pretty good and interesting and, you know, spending time with them is, I don't feel like I'm being dumbed down in doing that. Yeah. That's, it's good food for thought. I think I, I never considered that uh, difference, but it, 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 it crystallizes why I enjoy teaching say high school and, and, um, and 100, 200 level students more than talking to say the grads. Cause we host grad students here doing their practicums at, at my agency. And um, that's enjoyable. Like I love, I love helping them learn the practice of counseling, but teaching the fundamental concepts to an audience that is, you know, to that point, fairly ignorant is great because they come away thinking, go, Oh man, I know how I tick now. You know, it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Really, really cool. Hey, David, I have a quick question. I want to circle back to the class because I, I forgot to ask this earlier. Have you ever had someone start it and get kind of like a little ways in and then say, no, this isn't for me? No, no, I've not ever had a student uh, start the course and drop it. Uh, and I think, again, that probably goes back to some of that pre-screening I do. So they, you know, really clear about what they're getting into uh, and, um, you know, I think also that there's a sense in which students, students hear about the course from previous students, right? Mm -hmm. So they know, hey, this course is taught once a year, there's 16 students in it, I have a spot. If I don't take it this semester, I don't know, maybe I will never have a chance to take it. And, uh, um, you know, so I think that, that there's a, a that sense of about the students who take the course that they feel like they, you know, are uh, not that they've won the lottery, but that they, it's an opportunity that is not going to present itself necessarily on a, on a regular basis. So, uh, yeah, not every student comes away with it, like loving me or loving the class. You know, there are students who just, you know, they, they just mark it down as another course that they've taken. Uh, but you know, there are a lot of students who, you know, come back to me a year two or three years later saying, you know, that really, 
help me to better understand guns, right? I'm still, you know, not comfortable with guns in my life personally, um, but I feel like I can understand the world around me better. And then there are also students who are, you know, they'll write to me and go like, hey, I got my concealed carry permit this week. Just wanted to let you know. That's cool. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, then we can have that conversation of like, you know, that's awesome. Make sure, you know, do you also have a safe, right? You know, are you also, you know, practicing, training? You understand, you know, the manual of arms for your firearm, you know, and always using that as a, as a starting point for, for that broader conversation. And I feel good that, that those students at least, uh, you know, trust that they can, they can, that's something that they could tell me and I would be interested in. Uh, I don't think, you know, they would, they tell most of their faculty member, Hey, I bought a gun or <laughs> a right. carry permit now. Yeah, that's very cool. It's, it's, you know, for what you do for, for what walk to talk America does with clinicians, um, you know, the spotlight on kind of, I don't want to say converting people, but just introducing them to the worlds of firearms. And maybe, you know, we do convert people. Let's, let's face it. I mean, Jake and I have had people give us feedback to say, Hey, we walked into this anti-gun and now we're gun neutral, you know, and that's a step in the right direction. Um, but the spotlight's always on the concealed carry courses or the, the firearms instructor, right? Those are the ones that we, we spotlight and say, they're the ones that are going to convert it. But I always say that those people most likely are just accepting and taking in people that are already curious and they're, they're, they're about to go on that journey. Um, whereas I feel like what we're doing, you're getting people that are like, I don't know how I feel about this. You know what I mean? No one's going to go take a concealed carry course or, you know, get, get any kind of license and say like, I didn't want to be there, <laughs> you know, but with us, we're getting people that are coming out of that comfort zone. So I think it's very cool. And I, I hope one day we get the spotlight a little bit more. Because everybody in the firearms industry is always like, if people would just understand us, if they would just take the time to learn, you know, and, and that's what we're doing. So, you know, kudos to you for, for that course. I think it's just awesome. Yeah. And I do, you know, I think in that, in, you know, my blog writing and the light over heat and, you know, just in my everyday life, I just try to, you know, model responsible gun ownership and model the type of discussion of guns that I would like to see us have as a country. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's something that I always have in my mind, you know, try not to go off on people, you know, try not to take, uh, you know, controversial views just to get, you know, people to click. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel like the, that's something that resonates with the students, uh, you know, but like you guys, I'll probably, I also have all kinds of people like faculty members who are like, Hey, I'm thinking of getting a rifle, you know, or, I don't own a gun now, but, uh, you know, I started thinking about it. Um, and, you know, I think we all have those opportunities in every interaction we have that we're not thinking necessarily like, in the first instance, I'm interacting with you because I'm a gun owner. It could be someone at the grocery store or whatever. Uh, but, you know, the possibility if you develop a relationship with someone and then it comes out that you're a gun owner, all of that relationship you've built up then reflects also back on the fact that, oh, and you're also a gun owner. I, I thought you were, you know, I didn't know you were crazy. And I know <laughs> you're not crazy because I've known you for X amount of time. And I know you're not crazy and you own guns. So how do I deal with that cognitive dissonance? Um, so that, you know, I think when I was working up this proposal for this book, you know, the, one of the things they want to know is what do you hope to achieve and, you know, the, what I just said is like modeling what a normal, sane 
gun owner looks like, does, you know, what types of guns do we own? Why, you know, what kind of training do we take? All of those things. And, you know, for that to be the lesson, not to say, do this, don't do that, right? We have enough people who are saying that on both sides. Do this, don't do that. I just want to model it. You, you've uh, created a, a good, safe, warm, welcoming environment for people to explore that curiosity. And I think that's generally applicable to most. It's weird to think of firearms owners as, as marginalized, but I think that's what sort of happened over years and time is that for as large a volume as exists in this country of gun owners, they have been in the shadows for quite some time. And I would say that what you've done is the same thing that gets done in the spaces of, um, you know, race relations, sexual orientation, gender expression, uh, religion, the, the shrieky loud people are off-putting and it creates not the safe conducive environment to exploration. You've, you've offered something that through your report, through your integrous pursuit of this, through your, um, your modeling of what sanity looks like, um, have, you've created an environment where people can, can tiptoe forward and say, Oh yeah, Hey, I have a question about that. Right. And that's, I think that's something we want to try to do too, by saying, look, you know, we can occupy the middle ground here where, where most people live. We we're not on the fringes with the bullhorns, uh, shouting at you what to do or what not to do. And that begets a, a much more robust dialogue and it begets a much more favorable conversation where more people can set their fears aside and, and go forward and learn more. And really that's what we want. We want people to progress intellectually, psychologically, spiritually, you know, socially, uh, so that we live in harmony. We don't want to be, you know, stuck in our, our rigid boxed up labeled quantified and set aside, uh, very highly limited, uh, areas so that we're not talking to each other. We want to keep talking because that's how, that's how community happens, you know, and that's how, that's how people get along better. So kudos to you for, for creating that environment and doing it in such a way that it creates a much deeper, longer lasting relationship with the people who do follow your work and subscribe to your, your stuff and, and attend your classes and, you know, doing it not for the clicks. I think being not sensationalist, but just simply being humble and curious is, uh, going to build a lot stronger base over time. And it's that, you know, it's bearing fruit already. So good, good on you for doing that. It's, it's, it's heartening to me to, to see somebody else doing that. Uh, because I think that the tendency or the temptation is to go to the, the, the low hanging fruit of screaming, you know, yellow journalist headline type stuff to, to just generate uh, a following or an interest or, or buzz or whatever. And, and that's not what you're about. And I appreciate the patience that you're taking with it. It's very intentional. And I, and I, and I get that. It's very cool. I think, you know, one of the things is I've, you know, having grown up completely outside of guns for, you know, still the majority of my life and then getting into guns in a discipline in which guns and gun owners are pretty stigmatized. Yeah. You know, it took me a while to kind of feel comfortable talking about, you know, my own personal gun ownership uh, publicly, you know, a lot of my, you know, even though I was attending classes and writing about that on my blog, you know, there could always be the sense that, oh, I'm doing my research. Um, but, you know, I think the more uh, people came to kind of know me, like, and then, you know, I'm at the NRA show and someone walks up and introduces themselves to me, I'm like, oh, you know who I am. Um, then I started, you know, realizing like, okay, now, now I actually have some platform here. 
And, you know, what am I going to do with it? And, you know, so then, then being more open about, you know, yeah, I am a gun owner and this is why I own guns. And this is what I, what I do, uh, you know, has become easier to do the more you do it. Um, but, you know, I think it's important, uh, you know, for people to see, you know, if I'm going to say guns are normal, normal people use guns, I better, you know, be willing to say that includes me and this is what it looks like. Yeah, true. Yeah. Same, same story. That's the same story. Now it wasn't until three years ago that I was able to say I, I own guns and I use them. You know, it's the same, same. I was afraid of the stigma. Uh, it was really weird. Very weird. Yeah. I think about Jake, I think about like the first time we talked, you on the phone call said, Hey, I'm a concealed carry holder, but we cannot talk about that on the show. And I was kind of like, okay, <laughs> but I mean, like that's yeah, where my the, own show. Yeah. That's where you were at, at that point, you know, with, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's wild looking back. It's yeah. wild. Uh, how I let other people's voices get in my head. It's crazy. Um, I mean, you wanna, you know, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, I think that one, one of the things about doing anything is you worry about how you might be associated with other people who do that same thing, who, you know, may be more off-putting. Uh, and so, you know, I talk, you know, sometimes about, well, I, I, I don't always want to characterize myself as a gun owner because the assumptions that people have about what gun gun owners are like, you know, I remember Michael Bain one time saying, you know, yeah, are there assholes in the gun culture? Absolutely. Are there assholes in your local neighborhood knitting group? Absolutely. You know, (laughs) any group of human beings you get together, there's going to be assholes in, uh, and that doesn't stigmatize the entire group. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I try to, I try to bear that in mind. I just don't want to buy my scarf from the asshole knitter. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's why you just go to the next one down the line, right? Yeah. And you know, so, it, you know, what's crazy too, is like being in this industry for as long as I have. And I would say for the most part, you know, it was behind the scenes, you know, owning Eagle imports and owning an importer, but it's, it's crazy how much I see these people that come forward. And even Rob is like this to a certain extent, right. Is, um, has this controversial, but they get the they get the clicks and they get the following, right? And that's that's the price you pay, like Colia Noir, right? Like you go out there and you you say things and you know you just kind of drop these little bombs here for discussion and you polarize yourself at some t- at, at at points. But for the most part, even the people that are most polarizing, and I get this all the time because like somebody will say something, like say like Maj will say something, right? And then I have my friends over here that are like I roll. Oh, why is he like that? And I'm like, that Maj is different when you're with him in person, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like as much as like, I I understand why they do it and they get the following, but I think a lot of the asshole is that, and not that Maj is an asshole, um, but like some people might say that, right? But it's like, okay, I wish you kind of hung out with Maj. Right. Like, like just take some time to like walk around with him at a show or something like that. And then you might have a different opinion. You still might disagree with some of the things he says, but that's what I found a lot of the people in the industry are. And I can't mix certain, you know, if I have people that are curious about the 2A culture, there's certain people I know I can send that person to, or, Hey, follow some of this stuff or watch some of these videos. And then there's others. I'm like, no, I can't, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't send them that way because they might say something controversial, you know, uh, it's a very interesting group, you know, being, uh, you know, I would say I grew up, you know, single mom, 
you know, Asbury Park, New Jersey, San Francisco, California, I grew up in the super liberal areas. And, and I had those beliefs and, you know, coming into this stuff, looking at gun culture, I was like, I'm nothing like these people. How am I going to fit in here? But I did eventually, you know what I mean? And, and I will say that a lot of the people that I thought in the beginning, when I met them with an eye roll, once I got to know them and understand them, then I was like, okay, we're not that different. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go sit in a blind all day and hunt. You know, that's not my thing. But, uh, you know, when you go down the list of everything else, we're just cool. You know what I mean? And, and I, th- I always feel like the gun industry gets that bad rap because, you know, some of the people that have been, um, you know, out in the public eye kind of are, are what I would say a little extreme and crazy. And it's like, that's what people will focus on. Like, oh, that's gun people, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, and I'm sure that there are some people who, you know, I really just wouldn't want to spend time with, but you know, my experience has been, anybody who is interested in what I'm interested in, we can find some kind of common ground, you know, and this applies to, you know, talking to people who, you know, are super hardcore Delta force. Like what do I have in common with someone who's in Delta force? Absolutely nothing. Right. Right. Uh, But, you know, we find a common ground, something to talk about, something, you know, to, to think through together. And I think the same thing, you know, I just was at a workshop with, uh, many of the leading gun violence prevention researchers in the country, right? And then there's me who I don't do gun violence prevention research. Uh, but, you know, I spent two, two full days, you know, with these people and, you know, perfectly happy to see where is our common ground? Where is our common interest? We may disagree, you know, with the diagnosis of the problem, the cure to the problem, but we're thinking about the same problem, right? And, you know, I'd, I feel like anybody who's willing to talk to me with an open mind, I can find some common ground that we can talk about. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even my neighbors who uh, are like a third set of grandparents to my children, I mean, they're Dodgers fans, and I never thought that was going to happen. <laughs> Terrible. I mean, that, that's just atrocious. That might be, I might have to draw a line there. I don't know what they're saying to them when they're over picking apples and cleaning up <laughs> pine cones from the yard. I mean, maybe they're, maybe they're indoctrinating them with stuff, you know, related to like the 1988 world series or something. That would be awful, but <laughs> I have to take my chances. You know, common ground is they love my kids and my kids love them. Yeah. yeah so David, how you real, real quick. I mean, I'm curious because how like, you went to the NRA show, right? Uh, you, you've attended these events. Like what was your first thought when you went to your first NRA show? I mean, it, it's overwhelming. Like, right. you know, it's, it was uh, in Houston, uh, 2014. So it was right after Sandy Hook. It was, you know, the stand and fight uh, convention. And so, you know, you see, you see the diversity within the NRA, right? You see the political side, you see the training side, you see the guns and gear side. And so that always, you know, struck me because I think, you know, it's easy to vilify the NRA um, and, you know, they justifiably for some of the things that they're doing. Uh, But you also realize, you know, from its from its inception, it's been a pretty diverse organization that's done a lot, you know, regardless of the politics. But in the education training side, uh, you know, I think that that's that was what really struck me is like, oh, the NRA isn't one thing. It's not this 800 pound gorilla that just mashes people all over Washington, DC. 
Uh, and, you know, I'd love for it to get back to being that, that kind of organization, you know, one that, that really, uh, you know, represents the best of, of gun culture and, and not the worst of it. Yeah. I think, um, NRA TV really threw off a lot of what the NRA was doing, you know, that relationship with Ackerman and McQueen. And then, you know, they started kind of becoming more political in terms of like with the things that they were saying. Um, but it's really interesting because I remember, um, like 2012, I was dating somebody who she was just like, yeah, the NRA is racist. And, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? And she's just like, no, it's just, it's racist. And, and I said, well, have you ever been to an NRA show? You know, she's dating a gun guy. And, uh, I remember, you know, we didn't last long enough for me to, to get her to an NRA show, but it's funny how people just have this, like, you know, she was obviously just saying that, you know, somebody must've said something to her, you know, cause she couldn't give me examples except for defaulting to it's all white people. You know what I mean? I'm like, okay. Like, but it, you know, it's, I always tell people, you know, you should try to go to an NRA show. Just, just, you know, even if you're not into guns, just walk the show, you know, just to, just to make your own opinion. Um, because it is, regardless of how you feel, uh, it's something to see, you know, um, it's, it's, wild. yeah, I mean, it's, it's a spectacle for sure. You know, I think, I don't know how anybody could, could go to the NRA show and not just come away from it just saying, wow, whether it's like, wow, I'm completely repulsed. Wow. This is really attractive or wow. I'm going to, it's going to take me a couple of weeks to figure out what I just saw, which was kind of my experience. Yeah. I remember, I think I wrote 10 blog posts about my first trip to the NRA show because it was just so much. That's, yeah. that was my experience with shot. I, you know, lifelong gun owner, but it was the, the guns were always for a purpose. It was a tool for, you know, the job. I came from a family full of cops and uh, it was just the thing you take to work with you. And then, you know, on, every once in a while in the fall, we'd go hunting. And so it, I was never a part of the culture. I wasn't even aware there was a culture. And then I joined up with these guys and Mike took me to shot in uh, 2020. And I mean, I love trade shows because of, they're awesome, regardless of whatever it is that they're, the trade show is about. But this blew my mind, blew my mind. I also blew the doors off of any preconceptions that I had about what firearms culture was about. It was staggering. I mean, just absolutely stimulus overload. Um, but what I walked away from was something that I sort of touched the previous fall when we went to the, um, the gun rights policy conference uh, was the diversity. And, and it's like, in every shape and form, political diversity, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, uh, sexual diversity. I mean, it was like, wow, I had no idea, no idea. And it's global. It's, I mean, truly global in every sense. I, I could not wrap my mind around it other than to, to walk away extraordinarily humbled and wanting to know more. And I still continue that journey, which is really cool. Um, but it, it was, yeah, I had no clue. But I sure thought I did. No, nope. mm -hmm. yeah. not at all. Yeah, that's you know the we oftentimes as sociologists, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody is. You know, talking about averages, like what is the average X, <laughs> Y, or Z. You know, so when we talk about you know what does the average gun owner look like, you know, then we start saying it's like 
you know, it's a politically conservative sort of older conservative man from, you know, rural area in the South or the mountain West. And, you know, there's a element of truth to that, especially historically. Uh, but, you know, averages are composed of a lot of diversity underneath. And so if you only look at the averages, you miss out on all that, right? You miss out on the fact that 20% of gun owners think of themselves as politically liberal, right? That's that's a minority of gun owners, but yeah. 20% of anything is, you know, a large number of people. And it's not, you know, anything to be ignored. You know, and we look at uh, who was buying guns in the great gun buying <clears throat> spree, you know, uh, 50% women, uh, you know, 40% racial minority, a uh, lot of new gun owners, you know, who who don't look like the, you know, Duck Dynasty kind of caricature of, of gun owners. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that I think a lot of people who only understand guns from an arm's distance, whether they're, you know, regular people who consume the media or scholars, you know, that, that they don't see the, the diversity underlying uh, some of those stereotypes. Well, and, you know, something I learned recently was that its peak, and uh, apparently this may have been overestimated too, is that the NRA claimed 5 million members, which if you talk about 100, 110 million gun owners in America, now north of that, probably after the buying spree, you overlay that 20% of politically liberal people, you get a number of 20 to 22 million. That's four or five times more than what the NRA ever claimed as its entire membership. So it's like, this is not a monolithic thing. In fact, it's anything but. So to you know, point the NRA as the, the be-all, end-all representation of firearms ownership is pretty pretty disingenuous and you know inaccurate at, at most. So yeah. Uh, I think analytically, you know, it's better to Mike, think. Uh, do you, oh, no, go, go ahead, David. No, I was just going to say, you know, you know, I talked about that range, that continuum from gun owner to gun curious to anti-gun, you know, but even within the gun owning kind of community, you know, we sometimes, you know, think of it just as a binary, right? You either own guns or you don't. This is a most common way that academics approach gun ownership. But, you know, really, you know, gun ownership itself is a variable, right? What, you know, why, why do you own guns? You know, how often do you use your guns? You know, are you new to guns? Are you longstanding? Did your family own guns? You know, so there's lots of ways that we can unpack that black box of gun ownership, again, to appreciate a lot of that diversity, you know, that, uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, own guns, but but it just sits in a box in their basement, right? You know, that those people count as gun owners, but, you know, practically speaking, they're not really active participants in the gun culture. Uh, so, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of room for subtlety if, if we, you know, can be open-minded enough to, to, to look into it. feels like a good place to end uh mike always has a question for our guests though to wrap up being that this is a guns and mental health podcast we can't leave without addressing the uh, latter of those two concepts yeah david how do you tend to your mental health uh pretty poorly i would say <laughs> um you know i i'm a you know pretty demanding of myself uh if i do anything you know i want to do it seriously and do it well. And so, you know, I, I tend to, to put my, myself last in certain ways, but I, my wife, fortunately, you know, tries to help me see the other side of things and, uh, um, you know, just taking a walk around the neighborhood, 
love to do that. Love to hang out with friends. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a big drinker. I drink regularly. I don't drink a lot, but you know, I love to just go out, have a cocktail with my friends and just relax and, and connect in that way. Um, and, uh, also trying to take up golf, which I don't know if it'll, that'll be good for your mental health. Yeah. <laughs> that might be bad for my mental health, but, uh, you know, one thing that, and I don't want to, you know, keep going on and on and make this a, like a primary and secondary length podcast, but, um, you know, I was, I'm always trying to figure out how to be a happier person. Uh, and, so I, I read something by Arthur Brooks and he talked about how, you know, a lot of times we try to become happier by having more, like having more experiences, having more things, having more friends, even like just accumulation. But, you know, that, um, you know, he argues that, that the more we have, the more we want. Right. And so you can never win that have game in terms of becoming happier, satisfied with your life. He said, what you really have to focus on is reducing your wants, right? So if you reduce your wants, you know, then what you have becomes more meaningful and you don't want to have more stuff. So, you know, I'm working on reducing, you know, my wants, you know, and not think about, oh, you know, I loved, I need that, you know, new watch. I love that pen. Oh, I really want to go you know, to, to Scotland, you know, and just say like, if those things happen, that's great, but not to fixate on, you know, satisfying those, even in a kind of goal setting way, like, Oh, if I set my mind to it, I can do that. Right. You know, sort of, maybe that's kind of Buddhist, right. Just let go a little bit more. And, uh, and I'm taking that approach to this book proposal, you know, I'm investing a lot in it, but I'm also not getting overly attached to it. Like I can do the best I can, if it works out, that's amazing. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean I'm a miserable human being. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. really well stated. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you're in a good place of peace, too, with that uh, philosophy. So, well, Professor David Yamani, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, appreciate your time. Really appreciate all the work you're doing to uh, bring people together and foster a rich dialogue around this uh, firearms culture stuff that's, uh, you know, I think been a little bit polarized for a long time and it doesn't have to be. So thank you. Uh, where do people reach you? Uh, you know, I'd say if you Google my name, you'll find a lot of ways of, of, uh, you know, connecting with me. Um, but then guncurious.com, guncultureo.com, lightoverheat.com. I try to buy all the URLs, davidyamati.com. Uh, you know, I think those are those are the main ways that I have a kind of public facing presence. Right on. Uh, follow him. His work is exceptional and it's only getting better. So thanks to the listening audience for joining in. Be sure to share this around if you like it, because that's what makes the world better. And on behalf of uh, Arm, uh, sorry, on behalf of Walk the Talk America, we thank Arms Corps for continuing to sponsor this podcast. They are our title sponsor, and we uh, really appreciate their support, especially with the printing of our free mental health screening on their ammunition boxes. That's a yeah, really cool, cool thing that they've done for us. Go to wtta.org/love, take free and honest mental health screening, and uh, support Arms Corps by buying their ammo and their products. And on behalf of Zephyr Wellness, my company here in Northern Nevada, uh, we wish you all great mental health. Take care. Hey, Jake, how's it going? You know how it's going. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs>